G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Ardeet. Today is Tuesday, the 13th of January 2024 and our topics this week are the report into price gouging, price gouging, price gouging and enhanced sports games. Basically, the Olympics where doping is encouraged. Of course, we have our two ticks town talk in between, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history. And we're going to finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up on this last week. Adit, how are you? What's been going on? I'm traveling okay, DK. And for listeners, this podcast for me today is Brought to you by the power of the sun. <laughs> I, I was I was telling DK just before we, we came on that we had a, a storm down here. Look, you know, as far as things go in other parts of the world, not a big storm, but enough that it's uh it's knocked out the power until um at least nine thirty tonight. So at the moment I'm running it's about it's about five thirty in the afternoon here at this uh, today. At the moment, uh, so I'm currently running on our backup uh, battery, but I've got the uh, generator up on the veranda just in case they don't meet their their deadline. Because we've got, I might have possibly said this before, uh, but if you, if you're new and you're you're listening, uh, we sometimes talk about some of the the setups and our uh, sort of just preparation things i've got some uh backup batteries that don't don't run the house the whole house but they run a subset of circuits so that when we have uh something like a blackout that we've got at the the moment uh the the two fridges uh run and uh most of the lights in the house our monitored security system also uh runs internet and uh, we've got a small subset of powerpoints but yeah like the the stoves and everything else um hot water and that all they just sort of just have to wait until the power comes comes back on so uh i've also got a generator and with that subset of circuits that we've we've got i can plug the generator into the um into the into the power board or not power board the um what do you call it on the the wall where you've got all your switches and that for the um for your power? The fuse box. Yeah, fuse box. Yeah. Um I think this yeah. So in the fuse box we've got a uh a plug put in there so I can just plug the generator a single cord into that and it'll power all those circuits, which makes it a lot more convenient. So when we're getting the solar done, we got that put on. It wasn't too much extra. Um it would have been a tip for my brother-in-law so i've only had to use it uh once and compared to in the the past where you'd sort of have to bloody put the generator on and run power cords everywhere and you know double adapters all over the place to try and get a you know things looked after it makes it a bit easier because we we're it's not too bad for um blackouts down here it's been a little while since we've had it had it when we moved down about 10 years ago you could almost guarantee getting a a blackout of uh, at least once a month, not for long. Oh wow! Yeah, but it was regular enough. I think I think they just oh, there's two problems. 
there's a lot of trees down here and a lot of old pines as well and older gums and we get it's really windy down here at times so <laughs> wind, yeah high winds and old trees the power yeah. line yeah. <laughs> recipe for disaster <laughs> yeah bloody oath and i also think too when when we moved down this area was starting to to grow on the the mornington peninsula and their power supply just was it was right on the edge so it was uh yeah look it wouldn't go for for long uh but it would be enough that it'd be a little bit of a pain in the the neck but in terms of other people around the world who don't even have reliable power you know it's it's not the biggest problem but yeah it's it's my problem and it's um just interesting exercise to uh have something like this and deal with it when it's not a particularly life-threatening situation but just putting the systems into place like there was a couple of things i thought ah I realise I have a, a number of steps to get my generator out of our container, so that's something I'm going to have to to work on. And then there was also positioning it. I thought, oh, if I'm running it in this spot, that's going to go into the garage. So it's a good opportunity when you have something go a little bit wrong to practice for when things go a lot wrong. So that when they do go a lot wrong, you've done it once or twice and got the the muscle memory. So I think that's that's yeah. a really good piece of advice. Um, for everyone because oftentimes when things go wrong uh you know they happen pretty quickly uh actually speaking of which we had a little bit of a little bit of a a sudden rainstorm this afternoon Mm. and uh where my kids go to school the parking inside the school grounds is uh not very plentiful and it fills up pretty quickly and it becomes a bit of a nightmare uh trying to get out so uh, I was parked on the main road and there's a bit of a culvert there uh, and I'd parked on the school side of the culvert and a lot of people parked on the road side of the culvert and of course as it started to rain the culvert filled up with water uh, oh. very quickly admittedly within sort of 10 minutes it went from basically nothing to probably about two feet of water so a pretty oh. substantial amount of water that's uh, a lot of water in that time yeah, and my uh, my four-wheel drive has big tires on it, so I wasn't too worried about anything or getting stuck. Uh, but the the front tire was, you know, sort of halfway up because uh, it was sort of parked nose down and into the culvert a little bit. Um, by the time I came back, and there were a lot of people standing around looking at their cars, looking at their shoes, looking at me getting into my car and sort of wondering how they were going to cross this, uh, basically a small stream that had formed uh, to get across into their vehicles. And the people that had parked on my side of the culvert uh, that had uh, there was a Hyundai Getz parked uh, a couple of cars down from me, which I thought was pretty keen. I wouldn't oh. know if I was driving that. I don't know if I would, uh, you know, necessarily take take the risk of getting water in my air intake. But they got out; they weren't t- a problem because I did say to the bloke, "Look, if you get stuck, I'll, I'll pull you out." And snow no dramas. Um, but he, he gave it a good go, and he got out. Uh, personally, uh, the nose went a bit far under for my liking, but. You know, again, not my car. So, uh, but it, it, that's just a good little example of how something just just as simple as picking up your kids can sometimes, you know, go a little bit wrong. And if you're not if you're not prepared or you yeah. don't know what you're doing, um, <laughs> like like old mate and his gets, he got very lucky. Uh, I, I don't think there was any major damage, but um, 
I, I also don't know because I drove off. So his, his car apparently drove off fine. So, um, well, okay. So he got he got out there. Really. He got out and he drove off in front of me. So it mustn't have been too bad. If 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 generally if you you know hydrolock your engine, it's pretty quick that that happens. So so he must have been fine. But um, I think that's some pretty pretty good advice because we are having a bit of wild weather, especially in Australia. Yeah. Uh, I did hear a little bit off topic, but I did hear that the bureau was worried because the water temperature off the coast of New South Wales was warm enough that a cyclone could form off the coast of New South Wales, which is very unusual. The water temperatures, the sea temperatures uh, for this time of year generally don't get that warm. Of course, New South Wales isn't immune from cyclones. They have had them in the past, but generally they form further up north in the Coral Sea uh, off off the coast of Queensland and then sort of travel south uh, as opposed to forming within the, the... the ocean boundary of New South Wales. So, I, you know, we, we're seeing these more extreme events and things like that in the, in the as as predicted in the future. So it is a, a wise words from our deed there about maybe just you know get into the habit of of getting these things out and testing them. Um, I don't have a generator. Yeah. I also don't have a battery, so when the power goes out, we're basically screwed until it comes back on, which is yeah, is but, very frustrating. But before before that, because uh, we only got that a few years ago, before that we had um, you know, things like, well, we still got torches and, and mm. everything around. Uh, we made sure that we had uh, uh, those those sort of batteries for your, your, your phone. Because generally, even if the power's out, you're still going to be able to get reception somewhere, which then means you can get internet as as well. Um, and we also had uh, made sure that we had the means. Uh, you know, it was it was just sort of a gas, um, uh, well, as simple as a gas hot plate, yep. to be able to boil water and to do some basic cooking. So yes, you certainly you can have all different levels of preparation. But uh, it's always worthwhile just just thinking about what might happen, what you can do, um, and just give yourself as much peace of mind as you can within your your capabilities. And that may that may simply be that extra bit of water and knowing where you've got some some candles and some torches and a plan in place that you've discussed with your the people in your your household. So that you've just got just a little bit of an edge, and then when something minor, because this is relatively minor, what I've got today, treat it as if it's something that you do need to uh, do a bit more seriously, and just get into that practice. Because it's you also raised a great point there about how there was a very sudden turn in events. Now, I mean, two two feet of water—that's a lot of force against that water. Particularly, mm. yeah, you've got kids around there as well. That's something you have to be aware of. But you, from what you said, that guy in the uh, the gets uh, could have just been a, a few more centimeters, and the car could have been stuffed. And- exactly. Yeah, and it would have been stuck in it. Yeah, it definitely yeah. would have been. It would have ruined his afternoon. That's for sure. Yeah, um, yeah and, it would you have. Know- as an example, a couple of weeks ago, we we also had a, a bit of a storm here and a power outage. Um, and because we have basically because we just got enough camping gear, uh, we were able to make do uh, with the barbecue mm. and the lanterns and, like you said, a couple of candles and things like that. And we were able to um, to 
to have dinner and everything like that. And we were lucky that the power came back on. But having a little battery, one of those little battery power packs for your phone, um, I actually have one that has a small solar panel attached, which yep. I'll admit, I'll be the first one to admit, that solar panel's absolute crap. <laughs> and I think... I think it's estimated it takes about two days or something like that of full sunlight to to fully charge the battery pack. But, you know, in a pinch, when you've got no other options, you know, you might get a little bit of juice out of it or something like that to, to partially charge your phone or something like that. I just think I think it is good uh, for just being a little bit prepared for something because, as we all know, when these things happen, when there are events, big storms and stuff like that, uh, the supermarkets seem to sell out very, very quickly. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, the worst time to prepare is when the event is underway. So, Yep, and when everybody else is running to the store thinking, I have to prepare right now. Exactly. Don't be like those people. It, it <laughs> doesn't cost a lot of money to put a, you know, put one of those ten-liter jugs of water uh, in the bottom of your uh, uh, pantry or linen cupboard with a couple yep. of cans of soup. You know, they're like I don't know, a dollar each or something, yep. um, and just leave them there. And when you discover them, hopefully you never need it. And if you spent, you know, twenty bucks on these things and it it goes to waste, so what? Doesn't really matter. But I'll try I'll tell you what: if you do need it. You'll be very bloody happy that you got it there. Yep. Now, speaking of prices of food, let's move on to a, a price gouging report that has called for the government to act against exploitative practices of big business. Australians are being overcharged by banks, energy companies, airlines, and supermarkets. <gasps> Who would have guessed? <laughs> who have exploited the lack of competition in crucial markets to push for bigger profits, according to a new report that has called for the federal government to step in and address the price gouging. The report, conducted by former Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is the ACCC, former chair Alan Fells, Professor Alan Fells, I should say, on behalf of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, has found that exploitative business pricing practices have significantly added to inflation and that a new government policy is needed to remedy it. The report examined various sectors, including electricity, aviation, banks, food and groceries, childcare, medical specialists, electric vehicles, pharmaceuticals and shipping services in far north Australia. The report recommended policy changes that could remove obstacles to competition, improve information to consumers and make it easier for consumers to switch suppliers and expose or shame exploitative business practices. He's also suggested pricing behaviour across several industries should be fully investigated by the ACCC. Almost half of public submissions to the ACTU's price gouging inquiry related to supermarkets, prices and practices. Hmm, where have we mm. heard that before? Yeah. He said, neither Coles nor Woolworths experienced declines in profits nor revenue over the pandemic as their businesses and their main businesses were rightfully deemed essential services. And this position allowed business continuity and retained their position in the market. 
What has occurred since the pandemic, though, is an increase in margins in both Coles and Woolies, food and grocery segments driven by low competition forces and an ability to not pass on immediately cost reductions. Again, we've spoken about this before. Professor Fells discussed the use of special tags being used on normal grocery prices. Hmm. He says misleading price displays are illegal, but despite this, there is no prescribed minimum period where the businesses must advertise. He made 35 recommendations, including that Australia follow the European Union in outlawing excessive pricing and an establishment of a new body to make up for the lack of government intention on high prices. The review is one of three reports into the high supermarket prices during the cost of living crisis. The others are a Queensland inquiry announced by Premier Stephen Miles and an ACCC investigation commissioned by the federal government. Economist and former Labor Minister Greg Emerson has also been appointed to review the food and grocery industry code of conduct. So you can kind of feel that 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 last one uh, sort of almost is a, is another investigation of its own. So clearly yeah. the federal government, the state governments, or at least Queensland, uh, are taking this pretty seriously. We all know there's a problem. When you go to the shops and you are buying a bag of chips uh, or for our UK listeners, a bag of crisps uh, <laughs> for, for uh, you know, $2.50 or $3 a couple of years ago, <laughs> and now they're $8, um, I'm yes. sorry. What? When did this happen? Uh, It's absolutely disgusting, especially when you consider the prices of other things haven't exploded so much um, and the prices of some things have come down. We all know there's some price manipulation going on here. We've obviously spoken about this a lot, but it is really good to see that an official report of this caliber, considering that Professor Alan Fells was the former chair of the ACCC, uh, is standing here going, it's not just in your head. This is genuine uh, price gouging, effectively, uh, and the federal government needs to step up and do it. What sort of worries me is that this report was done by the Australian Council of Trade Unions as opposed to the federal government. I know they have their own uh, investigation going on, but it, I feel like this may be easy for them to kind of dismiss as, oh, well, you know, they have an agenda. They're trying to do their own things, which is obviously true. Uh, but I, I sort of worry that perhaps the ACCC investigation may not be quite as scathing as this report based on lobbyists and things like that. What do you think? Yeah, look, oh, I could say Alan Fells is probably actually one of my um, more favourite bureaucrats. So I've always had, I know, coming from me, that's that's funny. That's but like I, an oxymoron. I've never... <laughs> I, I feel like I've always had a bit of a soft spot for him because, um, yeah, whether I'm being conned by how he is or whether I'm correct or the truth somewhere in between, he's always come across to me as having... A, a decent core, the way that he's he's spoken and conducted himself over the the year. And look, in fairness, he's not the only one. Much as I will um, criticise them, but he is a bit of a, a standout to to me. I liked him when he was at the A Triple C, and uh, 
I've you know, bits and pieces. I, I can't remember seeing him for a while, but this one coming up and reading about it, I thought, oh, that's a that's a similar uh, impression that I've I've had to him in the the, the past. Um, so look, maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to be a little bit biased uh, if, from that point of view. However, I also did feel like with what he pointed out, you made the comment about it showing that it's not just in your head, and that's the that's the bit with the the wall being trying to be built, pulled over our our eyes. I mean, they're they're doing it particularly in the the US at the moment, and you know we tend to follow our pollies tend to follow the same thing but there's there's a real sort of downplaying of what us as the average people are experiencing you can be told that this rate is such and such that rate such and such over over there that this is getting better and that but if you're thinking i used to be able to go down to the shops with this amount of money in my pocket buy this amount of food for my, myself or my family, and now I can't do it. It doesn't matter what you're being told figure-wise. You can't argue with the reality of that. And it's not just in the super. I mean, the supermarket, because it's a regular thing that we see, it's a, it's a very good measure. But you, you look at the price of you, – you listed a whole lot of services and um, uh, different products – that he was he was looking at, and you ask the average person, "What's your perception of that?" And they they're all going to say it's higher, it's higher, it's higher. And it's not just because uh, it's you know being a bit um, I don't know negative about things. It's because you actually when you actually do mathematics, it literally does cost more. So I was pleased to see that coming through. I tend to agree with you that it being the ACTU. Um, the that's that's possibly going to go against it, possibly not as much as I would have thought of in the the past because Fels has uh, Fels has got a, a he, he has reputation. a good reputation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's he's got a solid solid reputation, and and uh, as far as I'm aware, this is an independent report. Like. I think it was commissioned by the 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 Australian Council of Trade Unions, but I don't know that they really had any input or, or or impact into it, which you know gives it that that sort of credibility as well. Yeah, look, I mean, you can always argue that whoever's you know supplying the money has um, strings one way or the other. How, however, as independent as can be, I I'll accept um, I'll accept that. I thought it was also interesting. Um, it always bothered me during the the pandemic that uh, supermarkets could be open, but you know small businesses like my local butcher and fruit shop couldn't be open, and it just it never ever really well. It didn't make sense to me because I thought the um, process of purchase was similar in both. <laughs> Things. Yeah, yeah, and it never sat right with me because I thought, "Wow, you're telling me that you're having to close down all these businesses." I know there was money sent towards it, but there's, you know, people get into habits, they develop new things, and it never sat right right with me because I thought this isn't fair. You're you're literally giving the big guys an advantage, and the advantage you're giving them 
is worth a like an absolute shirtload of money. It it doesn't surprise me that they weren't affected at all during the pandemic. And it's well, I don't know whether immoral's probably too strong a word, but to uh hear that they're behaving badly since then. Um, and we've stood up, yeah, we've had these conversations. I've stood up for some of the parts of the, the the supermarkets. You know, it's not all the negative ones, negative things that are portrayed. But this behavior that's highlighted, I think that's a real problem. And if this report actually gets um, its message across in a, sim- in a simple and similar to way, way to what you were just portraying it then, I think we have a a real chance of seeing some action. Just despite my feelings on government sticking their nose into this, I can see some argument for this at least getting uh, surfaced so that it's transparent. I, I think it was smart of them that just to release the report in full as they yep. have for that exact reason um i mean we're talking about it right now it's freely available anyone that is listening to this uh can go and access the report or you can you know uh uh see uh, basically a summary of it on a number of mainstream news uh broadcasters including the abc the australian uh, national broadcaster. So they're not hiding this. It's not. It's not a report that's you know being funneled through Parliament in the background or anything like this. The transparency is something that I really like, which I sort of worry about with the ACCC's investigation, or even the the Queensland government's uh, investigation. These things might might be sort of. Uh, sanitized before they're released perhaps or there might be information omitted i don't know you know that might be a bit doom and gloom on my part but uh this one did seem to be very transparent in in the way that i went about it and everything like that and i mean of course we know the 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 fields particularly electricity aviation and banking uh, as well as obviously food and, food <laughs> love, and groceries love, love your emphasis on banking with a similar emphasis when you're reading it out uh, because as a finance guy, uh, I I'm, I see it for what it is. I know what's going on. Um, which is the other the other um, I, I previously in the, in a in a previous life I used to work as a travel agent. So the, the aviation thing, I sort of I understand that one as well. Uh, there's there's a lot of uh, duopolies in this country. Uh, let's just say, <clears throat> and they certainly like to work together on uh well this is speculation uh but i feel like there is a bit of uh, uh inadvertent cooperation let's say between these duopolies to benefit them both let's just let's just leave it like that uh <laughs> and unfortunately the australian people are paying for it uh particularly in things like like i'm actually really glad that they did go into shipping services in far north queensland and the rest of northern australia because these places are very remote but they're often only serviced by uh, one or in very rare occasions, two logistics companies 
And as a result, they get absolutely hammered for their their shipping fees um, just for everyday items that the rest of us, you know, likely don't even really think about it. And again, I understand it's economies of scale and mm. the remoteness of locations and da 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 da. But when you do only have one company or maybe two companies servicing an area like Darwin, say, or Broome in Western Australia. Um, it really does allow the sort of price gouging mentality to sort of overtake it because what's the alternative? <laughs> what are you going to do? Go somewhere else, you know? Yep. And unfortunately, I do think that it's kind of, this isn't something new. I think a lot of Australians are just kind of, we do have this mentality of just kind of battling on and just putting up with it. We'll have a whinge, but we won't actually do anything to change it. It's, it's very, very Australian in that way. So it is kind of glad that, um, a lot of this is actually properly getting examined. Um, and we know the price of electricity is absolutely ridiculous. And we know that one of the cost of living measures that the uh, Labor government instilled in the last budget was the credits for the price of electricity. Unfortunately, that doesn't also mean that electricity companies or power companies just aren't hiking the prices to take advantage of those credits that they're that they're yep. getting so you know I, i'm glad that again we're shedding some light into this i hope it actually results in action i don't know that the recommendations from this report actually will go into action um but we'll see um well it's yeah. yet to be seen you know it, it is. It is yet to be seen but we also have that uh i think the key word here in this is is transparency. Yeah, you know, I a big fan of you know, free and open markets. And sometimes people think, oh, so you just want you can do what people to do what they want. No, yeah, a free market has has rules and rules that are agreed upon by uh, the participants, those who are you know, buying and selling. Um, you can argue that government's role is to ensure that that. Those those rules are, are stuck to, and in terms of what we have as an economy, I do view that as the the role. So I don't have any strong objections to the rules of the market being highlighted and it being looked at if the participants are abiding by those rules. Because if everyone if everyone knows the rules and everyone's agreeing to it and you're looking at it and you're saying, okay, I may not like it, but they're not doing anything dodgy, you can sort of reconcile with it and uh, adapt to it. But at the moment, there's just this, this murkiness about it where you think someone somewhere is really screwing me and I can't quite see where it is. You made that comment about the shipping prices in the uh, up north. Now, if that's transparent and you look at it and you say, "Oh, okay, well, you're using yeah this amount of fuel. You're having to have two people because you know you have, have, have brakes for the the truckies and that uh, you're having to do the run this amount of time. Oh, okay, I can see why we're having to have yeah you know, the prices jacked up fifty percent." But when it's just, yeah, look, mate, it's this is just what it costs. You can't help but feel a little bit um, distrustful. So for me, the key in in this that I hope really gets plugged as a message is transparency of all the players, and I think ultimately that benefits them as well as us. I think that's a good place to leave it. 
Let's move on. It's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. Okay. This week's Two Tick Town Talk, uh, we go over to WA again. I feel like I had a couple of trips to uh, WA via the Two Ticks Town Talk, but this was another interesting one. So this is Northampton, uh, probably Northampton in WA. So it's uh, it's a town, 52 k's, 32 miles north of Geraldton in the Midwest region of WA, Western Australia. Uh, 2011 had a population of 868. So it lies on the Northwest Coastal Highway. Uh, was originally called the Mines, um, but was gazetted as Northampton in 1864. And surprise, surprise, <laughs> named after the colony's governor, John Hampton. Oh. <laughs> yeah. another, another one. Um, the the town was sighted. Uh, Freaking egos on these blokes, I tell you. <laughs> uh, the town was sighted in the uh, Nakanina Brook Valley between the hamlets around two major copper mines in the area, the Warrenuka and the Gwala. Uh, prior, prior to the arrival of Europeans, the area was home to the Amangu First Nations people, and there are still rock paintings nearby. So a few factoids. Uh, one of the oldest towns in WA, um, as we said, declared a town site in 1864. Uh, also, lead ore was found by explorer James Perry Walcott um, in the bed of the Murchison River and establishing the mining industry in WA. So a Western Australia has a lot of reliance on mining, and it's got God, it's got bloody resources popping out of every bloody rock. It seems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's interesting to hear that you know, this this lead all being found and the the copper with it. Um, that that was sort of one of the the starts of the um, mining for that uh, th- that colony. And what do we got here? Uh, by 1864, 980 tonnes of lead ore and 230 tonnes of copper ore were exported from the district, representing 14% of the colony's total exports. And the only thing that beat it was wool, which had it by 52%, and sandalwood by 18%. Uh, oh, so, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the mining I'm, is. I'm just- most surprised by the sandalwood. I didn't know that was a big export, but there you go. Yeah, I th- I'm trying to cast my mind back to whether we'd mention on a Two Ticks Town talk or somewhere else that it's uh, for for the incense and that there's still, I mean, it's not that level of market anymore. No. Um, particularly given how much stuff they dig out of the ground, but that it's still a, a viable market over there. Sandal wouldn't, oh, God, listeners might remember. There was some other, there was some other tree that had... Um, Oh, I don't know if it was aromatic properties, but yeah. But back then, I, to be honest, I didn't dig in any further into why sandalwood was that. Now that you, now that you've mentioned it, because that's a <laughs> that's a fair whack of um, the colony's total exports. Yeah, that's eighteen percent. 
Yeah, it must it must just grow really well there, or it does. Um, it, it it does. Yeah, that's my understanding that it grows particularly well, and there's a number of um a number of groves over there that uh yeah, it just goes gangbusters. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a good I climate. do like the smell of it. I do. Oh, yeah. so do I. Yeah, yeah, big fan of sandalwood. Um. So as an indication of the, the mining growing by 1870, 1877, so that's um, uh, 13 years later than those figures that we had there, the district's export of copper and lead ore had grown 350% and were the colony's second largest export um, after war. So they overtook sandalwood. <laughs> yeah, a couple of the factoids was that the uh, was the first Western Australian government railway line was constructed there from Geraldton to Northampton, a uh, distance of thirty three miles and twenty five chains, and opened in eighteen seventy nine. And no, I didn't convert that to metric, uh, <laughs> but yeah, around make a rough guess. Uh, it's also one of the state's premier wildflower districts. And for people overseas who uh, don't know much about uh, Western Australia, it has a number of areas where uh, they have annually just incredible wildflower displays. It's on my it's on my list uh, to to see. Uh, but people w- people will make trips from overseas, particularly for it. People make trips across Australia for it, just to see fields and fields of um, fields, paddocks, open areas, just full of, uh, of wildflowers. So their, their local website notes, Northampton boasts a wonderful array of beautiful and colourful wildflowers in season, including exquisite orchids such as the donkey, bee, cowslip and the rare greenhood orchid. Uh, Spectacular fields of pink everlastings and yellow pom-poms are easy to find amongst the Northampton countryside and the sand-loving kangaroo paw can be found here. Love a good kangaroo paw. We've got a few of them here. Um, These are just a few of the magnificent range of wildflowers you find when visiting the Northampton region. But what particularly caught my eye, because that's a, I mean, the wildflowers alone is a big one and the start of mining. Okay, little bit of a quiz for you because what caught my eye was something near to Northampton. In fact, Northampton was its service town. So, see uh-huh. if you see if you can guess this. What does Australia have a few of, and what is one thing that WA is known for contemplating and even trying unsuccessfully to do when it had disagreements with with the other states? Particularly not long after Federation. I wanted to uh, secede. Bingo. Yes. So, what caught my (laughs) eye? They hate the Commonwealth. (laughs) They want to leave. They're like like the Texas of Australia. They're always talking about it. They won't bloody shut up. Absolutely nailed it. So what caught my eye is probably the best-known Australian example of this. It's a little micronation called the Hutt River mm. Province. Yes, I, I knew it. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, I think most people over here do. So the Micro Nation's a political entity whose representation representatives claim that they belong to an independent nation or sovereign state, but it lacks legal rec- recognition by any sovereign state, and they're classified separately from de facto states and quasi-states. Uh, they're also not considered to be autonomous or self-governing as they lack the legal basis in international law for their existence. So the Principality of Hutt River, um, often referred to by its former name of the Hutt River Province. Now, this was an unrecognised micronation in Australia, proclaimed in 20, on 21st of April 1970. So farmer Leonard Casely declared his farm to be a sovereign state, the Hutt River province. A few years later, Casely might even be Casley. So Casley is probably the correct term there. Uh, a few years later, Casley began styling himself as Prince Leonard and granting family members royal titles. The claimed territory had an area of 75 square kilometres, 29 square miles, making it larger than several recognised countries, like countries like uh, Vatican City, Monaco and Nauru uh, are smaller than that. In fact, there's a whole list that it's, it's, um, it's bigger than, or was bigger than. So, uh, look, I'm... No surprise, I was particularly taken. I'm particularly taken with the idea of a, a <laughs> micro nation and seceding. <laughs> no surprise to you. So, how does it start coming about? Uh, Leonard Cassidy declared the principality an independent province in 1970 in response to a dispute with the with the government of Western Australia over what his family considered draconian wheat production quotas. So they had a farm that was uh, around 4,000 hectares, uh, just shy of 10,000 acres, of wheat that was just ready to go uh, when the quotas were issued. And those quotas um, allowed Casley to sell only 1,647 bushels, or approximately 40 hectares. So with his 4,000 hectares, he was only allowed to sell... Um, he was only allowed to sell 40 of that. So 40 of 4,000, you can understand why he wasn't particularly um, impressed. And there was apparently a bit of a boom with the the, the wheat production at the, the time, and um, there's a whole lot of stuff with the wheat board, a whole side story that I don't know might come up another time and something else. But... Um, Basically, the government step was stepping in and saying to wheat farmers, "You can only sell this." So, you understand being being pissed off. So the uh, so the initially the five families who owned the farms they banded together to fight the quota. Uh, Cassidy lodged a protest to the governor of Western Australia, Sir Douglas Kendrew, but the governor didn't assist. Uh, Two weeks later, Cassley claimed the government introduced a bill into Parliament to resume, which is try and take his and the other family's lands under compulsory acquisition laws. And at that point, he claimed that international law allowed them to secede and declare independence from the Commonwealth of Australia. 
Castley said that he nonetheless remained loyal to Queen Elizabeth II. So around about that time, he claimed that uh, in correspondence with the Governor-General's office, uh, he'd inadvertently been addressed as the administrator of the Hutt River Province. Uh, And Castley claimed that this constituted legally binding recognition of the principality. Now, look, yeah, dear Michael Nations, there's just a whole warren of rabbit holes to go down. I do love, sorry to just yeah, jump in, but yeah, I, love, jump in. I, I love that because it's like, ha, I've caught you yeah, out. I'm yeah, technicality and now I'm free, you know. Uh, it's a bit like the, the sovereign citizen type thing where if yeah. I say the right words, you know, the police will leave me alone and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's... You know, it's a little bit like that, but uh, this ha- these guys do have sort of a, a... I do have a soft spot for them, you know, yeah. because th- the thing was is, and I'm sure as you'll get into it, they, they were trying to legitimately do this. It wasn't just some stunt to get out of paying some taxes and get around some wheat, wheat uh, quotas. It was like he, he doubled down. This was not a, a little fad. This was a real thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, bloody oath. He went for it. So shortly after that, he styled himself as His Majesty Prince Leonard of Hutt. And he did this because, and again, we get into all these uh, little little side things. He did it because he reckoned it would enable him to take advantage of the British Treason Act of 1495, uh, which, which provides that the de facto king of a nation cannot be guilty of treason in relation to any act against the lawful king and that anyone who interfered with that monarch's duties could be charged with treason. So, yeah, I could imagine he just had a a head full of this knowledge. So he continued to sell wheat in defiance of the quota. Um, He believed that under Australian law, the federal government had two years to respond to his declaration of sovereignty, and he said the failure of them to respond gave the province de facto um, autonomy. But uh, so he he stated that in uh, 1972, but that the Western Australian government can still dispute the secession. So he still gave them an out. So it's like, here's my interpretation of the rules. Uh, Ball's in your court now. Uh, Where would you go from there? Well, you go to there on 2nd December 1977, where Cassley declared war on Australia. (laughs) 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 But he notified authorities of the cessation of hostility several days later. Now, <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we dodged a bullet there. There's a little <laughs> bit of method to his madness. So uh, it might be more than a coincidence that this uh, declaration of war came just a few months after a court decision where Cassley was fined for failing to furnish the ATO with certain documents. Uh, so the short state of war, <laughs> short state of war <laughs> between the Principality and Australia was a scheme whereby the prince's purpose was to argue that under the Geneva Treaty Convention of 12th of August 1949, a government should show full respect to a nation undefeated from a state of war. 
Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Like this is what I'm saying. He's, he's clever. He knows what he's doing. He's tr- he's trying all the loopholes. Like I said, to catch the bout, right? Yep. Yep. Bloody hell! I just I, I love how he continually attempts to use the rules of the bureaucrat bureaucrats against themselves. It's, it's like it's like legal warfare, basically, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's it was so it was it was fun to read that and think, oh, good on you. That's another attempt. So the royal lineage lineage. Uh, so twenty seventeen, uh, Castley announced that after ruling for forty five years, he'd be stepping down to be succeeded by his youngest son Graham. Um, with a number of potential sons and daughters, the successor was nominated by Castley and approved by a crown committee. So. Some commentary at the time thought that his oldest son Ian was to be the successor, but I don't um, don't know why Ian didn't make it. Uh, but it was passed on to Graham, and uh, a bit later on in 2019, Prince Leonard Castley uh, died on the 13th of February. So we get onto how the province was besieged by the Australian government. So. In my opinion, and looking at these micronations, taxes and control is at the heart of the bureaucrats' battles with the province, as it is with many micronations. So in, in 1977, despite claims of sovereignty, he was prosecuted, uh, successfully prosecuted for failing to comply with requirements to furnish the Australian Taxation Office with required documents. 2006, the ATO successfully prosecuted him again. Uh, he sought special leave to the High Court of Australia, but that application was dismissed and his arguments were considered fatuous, frivolous and vexatious, uh, which you could just do a little bit of a call back to whoever's paying the bills does have some control. Um in June 19, 2017, he was ordered by the Supreme Court of Western Australia to pay $2.7 million in unpaid tax and his son, Arthur Castley, to pay $242,000. Uh, when he died in 2019, he left his son, Graham, um, Prince Graham, let me use his correct title, uh, to inherit that debt with the, the tax office. Uh, unfortunately, 3rd of August, Principality was formally dissolved amidst disputes with the ATO. The bureaucrats won, uh, demanded the Principality pay millions in unpaid tax over its 50-year history. Um, So that, in conjunction with the financial impact caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, meant that the Principality's own land was sold off to settle the tax dispute. So how much legal status did the Principality had? Uh, there was no legal status under, um, as a matter of Australian law. High Court dismissed his application. Um, Leonard argued that he reside in, resided in the Hutt River province and that is not a part of Australia and not subject to Australian taxation law, which, as we heard before, they weren't too impressed with that fatuous, frivolous, <laughs> vexatious. <laughs> yeah. As, as you can imagine. <laughs> uh, and the Australian government 
unequivocally stated on its website that didn't recognise the secession of the principality. Uh, Passports, because they did issue their own passports, they issued their own stamps, their own coins, but the passports weren't recognised by the Australian government. But there was just a couple, and I'm sure sure this gave the royal family of the the Hutt River province some hope. There's a couple of of occasions where organisations... stated the province had some sort of sovereignty. The the National Museum of Australia contained an exhibition on the theme of separation, and in that they include the Hutt River province display, uh, which stated that Cassley successfully seceded from Australia. Uh, Hmm. There's another one, Judy Lattice, who's a sociologist at Macquarie Uni, stated once that many officials in Western Australia, some quite high up and even nationally in Australia, are happy to play out the myth of Hutt River's sovereignty by attending Hutt River functions, returning correspondence and abandoning the claim for tax. Some people thought they... um, There were some bureaucrats who thought that should be abandoned. Uh, In 2005, the Shire of Northampton listed the Principality as having high historic and social significance as the site of Australia's only independent Principality. Um, 84 to 2010, Australian diplomatic missions in 28 countries exchanged 120 diplomatic cables with Australia concerning activities relating to the Principality. Um, in 2008, the Council of European U- Union issued a memorandum identifying Hutt River passports among known fantasy passports issued by private organisations and individuals to which a visa should not be uh, affixed. And this one, you know, I don't understand in some ways the reasoning of, of this one. This one just it genuinely surprised me. In April 2016, the Principality received a letter from Queen Elizabeth II, which communicated the Queen's good wishes on the anniversary of the founding of the Principality 46 years before. The letter from Buckingham Palace was signed by Sonia Benici, Senior Correspondence Officer. Uh, it reads in part, I am to convey Her Majesty's good wishes to you and to all concerned for a most enjoyable and successful celebration on 23rd and 24th of April to mark the 46th anniversary of the Principality of Hutt River. And the Queen in that case was replying to a letter from Cassley congratulating her on her 90th um, birthday. That one, I thought that was an interesting one. <laughs> it's it's so much fun, right? Yeah. The idea... <laughs> And I think that's why, you know, the Queen's office and and so many bureaucrats and that, because, like I said, he he gave it a real go. Like, he minted his own coins, he issued his own passports. Like, he wasn't, he had his own postal service. Like, you know, there's a handful of things you need to be, like, a functioning country. Yep. He did it. Like he got the book. He read. He he was like. Because remember, we got to remember this is like in the nineteen seventies. It's not like you can just bring up Google and be like, "How do I make my own country?" Uh, He he's one of these pioneers of this sort of uh, 
fun, rebellious nature of, of you know, at the end of the day, uh, Australia is never going to formally allow him to secede because he doesn't want to pay us taxes. That's not how society works. But the fun of it is that, you know, he, he's genuinely giving it a go and he's not just going, my house is a new nation and what are you going to do about it sort of thing. He, he yeah. legitimately, he did everything by the book as if he was another nation but of course <clears throat> the problem with being a nation is y- you only really are a nation if other countries agree that you're a nation oh, there's, a def- there's a definition there's a definition of that so on, on uh 31st of january 2020 this announcement was made his highness prince graham has informed me that the government of the principality of hut river has decided to dissolve the principality, which will once again become part of the Commonwealth of Australia. So, looking through the history of micronations, both here and overseas, it's it's interesting to note how intolerant bureaucracies are of them. Also interesting to note how many of them there are. If you look up a list of micronations, you might be surprised. So, I can understand it to a degree. Uh, but there's a certain feeling I have of, look, you can have democracy <laughs> as long as it's on our terms about it. But one of the things that was was interesting is I found it difficult to get the exact numbers because there's a few sources that seemed reasonable enough um, to use as an estimate because uh, they were all sort of in the rough ballpark to say of the roughly 100 or so self-declared independent entities around the world, about a third of these can be found in Australia. And that ah. was a surprise to me. There's, uh, <laughs> you dig a bit more, and there's a few little inspired micronations around Australia, some of them virtual, some of them um, revolving around a, a driveway, some of them revolving around Around Blair. a driveway. Yeah, yeah. There was, I think in Mossman of Sydney, where there was there was a council was uh, not going to give uh, a, approval for a driveway, and um, I, I I don't remember the bloke's name, but he he went down this line of declaring it an independent thing. So, uh, and and that it, that in lies the problem, right? Yeah. And, and look, sorry that yes, that you 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 um remind me before on this. It's worth noting that um, when we're talking about micronations, no micronation has ever become a state. It is very unlikely that any micronation will ever become one. This is because, and this goes to what you're saying. This is because to be a state. An entity must possess a government or system of government in general control of its territory to the exclusion of other entities, not claiming through or under it. But just like Hutt River Province, once proudly served by our Tutix Town Talk town of Northampton, just because the bureaucrats keep winning doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. <laughs> I Hutt River Province definitely has a, a soft spot in my heart, as I'm sure it does. Like you said, you mentioned a lot of a lot of official people that it kind of touched them as well. And I think it's because of 
his tenacity and and his, his you know the fact that he was like this isn't a joke this is real this is what i'm doing uh i do know a couple of people that had visited and purchased uh you know they, their main draw was the tourism aspect and and you could purchase uh like commemorative commemorative uh, coins and and money and things like that um they'd stamp your passport and things like that so it was yeah, a bit of fun yeah. <laughs> and like i said there wasn't really much to do there it was more just kind of like the tourism of the fact that it is what it is. Um, it is a shame that it, it's gone now, but I, I, com- I, I do completely understand why all the bureaucrats are like, through the official channels, they're like, we can't have this because it does set a precedent where you can just be like, nah, I'm not paying your tax anymore, you know, get stuffed. And like you said, <laughs> there's a driveway in Mossman, which is its own country, which is just absolutely ridiculous, right? Like you yeah, can't. It, prop- it prompted its own uh, its own <laughs> micronation. Yeah, exactly. And you can't allow people just to to disagree with the rules and just be like, nah, you know, I'll, I'm gonna my house is my own country now, and and I don't have to pay land taxes or, you know, blah 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 blah. At the end of the day. Um, it is a, it is a bit silly and ridiculous, but I think the beauty of the Hutt River province was that it was as old as it was, uh, mm. and the fact that it was incredibly isolated. It isn't a it isn't a very remote area of the country, well, the world really, mm. um, and it wasn't relying on really any other services. So he was, kind of, you know, he was kind of just like, eh, I can just leave because, <laughs> and what are you going to do about it? And you know, it took them a long time to nip it in the bud. I do Ooh. want to add, just before we move on, that if you drew a line southwest of Hutt River Province proper, the homestead at least, uh, straight towards the coast, uh, which is the port of Gregory exists there, there is a uh, lagoon called the Hutt Lagoon, and it is famous because it has a pink lake that's oh, right oh, another that's right. one this was a uh, two ticks lake talk the whole time <laughs> oh that's that's an interesting little joining of the 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 dots <laughs> <laughs> actually to be fair that lake is quite interesting because it is it is uh partially mined for the the um I think it has lithium in it, so it is. Ah, right, yeah. It's yep. very big, uh, but it is it is quite interesting in that respect. So, anyway, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> the enhanced games drug-friendly sports competition has gained prominence even as the backlash continues to grow. It has been described as dangerous by experts, while others are skeptical that it'll ever go ahead. In fact, there are a few details about the so-called enhanced games would operate, aside from one obvious point. It will have no drug testing. Funded by venture capitalists and cryptocurrency bankers, if that doesn't set alarm bells off in your head, I don't know what will. Uh, the idea of a drug-friendly sporting competition is gaining prominence even more so in the last like the last few days. The Australian-born president of the Games, Aaron D'Souza, insists that Australians and the Olympic gold medalists are among hundreds of athletes who want to compete in the event, though none have come forward until this 
week. Starting with James Magnuson, an Australian three-time Olympic gold medalist. Uh, sorry, he was a three-time Olympic medalist who won silver in the 100-meter freestyle in 2012. He told a sports podcast that, and I quote, if they put up a million dollars for a 50-meter freestyle world record, I'll come on board as their first athlete. I'll juice to the gills and I'll break it <laughs> in six months. I tell you what, his picture, his, his picture that I can see of him, if uh, like I'll, I'll take him his word, there's not actually juicing the gills. He's obviously someone who's bloody dedicated to a, a tra- to training. I'd be, I'd be pretty pleased if I had a tenth of his muscle and only a tenth of his bloody body fat. He's incredibly fit. Um, he won. I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but I'm pretty sure he won, as I said, he's won uh, several medals, but uh, he's also won a number of, uh, like, the swimming world champions and, and things like that. So he's not just an Olympian. Uh, anyway, moving on. The former swimmer, uh, Leslie Jones, a three-time Olympic gold medalist later said that she was not against the concept of the games nor Magnuson's participation suggesting that it actually might keep clean sport clean which is an interesting take in general the idea of a drug friendly games has already generated significant backlash from the mainstream sporting community of course it has The AOC chief, Matt Carroll, said in October that the Australian Olympic Committee believes that the concept of a drug-enhanced games is dangerous. I mean, of course he would say that. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't want to take it away from the, uh, you know, from the Olympics. The Australian Medical Association, the AMA, their position statement uh, says that using performance-enhancing substances and methods tarnishes the health, reputations, and records of athletes and sporting teams, and every appropriate effort must be made to eliminate the use of banned substances and methods. But it is not clear who would take part in the games, when and where they'd even be run, or exactly how much prize money would be at stake. As I said, President of the Games, Australian Aaron D'Souza, says that we'll write James Magnuson a $1 million check for breaking the 50-metre freestyle world record at the Enhanced Games. He added that the first enhanced athlete to publicly break Usain Bolt's world record will also get at least... One million US dollars. Wow. The event will include individual sports such as athletics, aquatics, gymnastics, strength, and combat. I don't really know what that means if that's just limited to fencing or if that expands it to things like the UFC. There will be medals for first, second, and third placements, with the biggest prize going for breaking world records. Another open question is how or whether law enforcement would get involved for such a competition. There are almost 200 banned drugs and performance enhancing methods registered by the World Anti-Doping Agency. Some of the most popular are anabolic steroids, human growth hormone, stimulants, including amphetamines, cocaine and ecstasy, while, of course, new ones are being developed all the time. But doping will not be 
mandatory, even though I said earlier that it would. It's, it's actually not. Uh, and laws around the use of performance enhancing drugs vary all around the world, of course. And while many are legal with a prescription, not as I've just said, not all of them are. So the AMA, the Australian Medical Association, has warned that recreation drugs are also used in sports cheating and comes with their own dangers and that many of the drugs may be dangerous if they're mixed with unknown substances. D'Souza says, every action has risks. <laughs> of course, yeah. he's going to say that. He's not the one doing it. <laughs> the games organizer's key to managing risk will be clinical supervision. He argues that drug testing is not about safety, but about fairness. And he says that the pressure to use drugs is already there because of the number of elite athletes already banned for using prohibited substances. So I think, look, he kind of has a point that people are already doing this and then they use the, you know, they dope and then they use the masking drugs and stuff like that. The pressure's already there. We've seen it. It's obviously more prevalent in some sports and in some, from some nations, you know, we've had cases in before, like yeah. very famously, the Russian Olympic team was all disqualified because of their uh, just flippant use of prohibited drugs they kind of didn't give a shit um but but uh, this has also been one of those things that i've always uh, sort of championed it's become a bit of a meme where let's get someone as uh let's just push the the limits of human biology to with these performance enhancing drugs and things like that uh to the absolute pinnacle and just see what's possible uh, yeah. So, uh, I kind of like the idea on paper. However, I really <laughs> don't like that it's being funded by venture capitalists and cryptocurrency bankers or crypt <laughs> crypto bros, as we like to call them. Um, these are not good people. They, <laughs> they should not be doing this. Um, though, I am absolutely certain that they would put up the money. Uh, so, mm. that's a thing. I, I don't know how to... I'm very conflicted about this this whole idea uh, because also it'll probably be held in some uh, legally dubious sort of jurisdiction. It'll be like hel held on a, on a friggin' oil rig in international waters or, or in or some... Or the Hutt River province. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or some, you know, some... I don't know, some country where it's just kind of... You know, it, oh, it's it's technically in the waters of of North Korea or something like that, um, yep. where it's kind of anything goes, uh, and it it sort of just has a bit of a I don't know a bit of a vibe to it that kind of tingles my spidey senses. But what do you reckon? What do you think? Yeah, look, I get that that sort of sci-fi dystopia. Um, what what's what's that one that's oh god, I should Hunger Games. Is it the? Is there's the Hunger Games is one. I was more thinking um, Squid, Squid Games? Games. That's yeah. That's what yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's sort of got that that bit of a a vibe about it. And look, yeah. who knows? Who knows how it would go? Look, on on a very high level, without getting into the the devil in the the details, I tend to be in favour of it. I think it's a. It's going to be a way that allows people to test themselves um, and their performance and what they can do with uh, with with assistance. I mean, look, 
I um, I definitely don't use steroids and performance-enhancing drugs because part of what's required there is that I need to be in a situation where I'm actually concerned about my performance, and I'm not because <laughs> my my uh, understanding is that you can do the things like the the anabolic steroids and uh, a number of the, the the hormones and that. But the thing is, you don't just sit on your couch waiting for yourself to, to, to get bigger. You actually have to go out there and do more training and harder training. My understanding, and look, it, I could be completely misunderstanding this, but I'm fairly sure that I've got the, the spirit of it. My understanding is that a lot of this, uh, the, the, the juicing and that, allows your body to respond substantially um, better to the exercise and the training that you give. So you build your muscles faster, you build your endurance faster, but you still have to get there and train. It still requires effort. It's not just a one-way street. Now, look, I mean, obviously, if you're – um. Yeah, on the yeah, amphetamines or meth or something like that, uh, you're probably going to have some advantages in some things where you just it doesn't really sort of matter <laughs> what your muscles is. You're just sort of going to be you know, out of it and and um, running wildly. But I would make a guess that for most of the time, uh. If you want to actually be an elite athlete athlete in the enhanced games, you still have to train like an elite athlete. Because if you've got somebody uh well take the Hussein Bolt one, for yes. example. And look, yep. I can't I can't remember his his times, but I mean he's um he, he would probably beat me in a race, I would guess. <laughs> oh, yeah, he- <laughs> I think he's retired now, but he, he holds multiple world records. Yeah. I, I reckon, I reckon he would be breaking the ribbon by the time I was sort of pushing myself out of the blocks, thinking, "Yes, I'm going to do it." But, yeah. So take his example as one because it's that's sort of a a well known um, a well known record. I would guess that if you took somebody. Um, who was who was let's say even someone half reasonable, and pump them full of uh, stimulants and a whole lot of other stuff that they still wouldn't even get close. I reckon the person who would get close and will break it, in my opinion, in the enhanced games, is going to be somebody who, in their own right, would be an elite athlete without these enhancements but with the addition of the, the drugs, is going to take it to another level. And I suppose that's the sort of exciting thing about this. It's can you take it to another level? Where can you take humanity? And it's sort of like a, self, um, a self-imposed trial on pushing the boundaries of the human body and the human condition, which is going to have some horrible things happen. I mean, oh, yeah. Oh, oh God, yeah. people, heart, hearts are going to be popping, bones are going to be breaking, there's just going to be 
there's just going to be a lot of mess with it. But in a hundred years, we may look back and think, yeah, it was worth it. So that's that's sort of that's that's probably the side I actually come down on. I think this is worth giving it a go, and as long as to, as it's voluntary, um, I think why not? Let's see what happens. That's uh, you know that sort of gives me that uh, vibe from Shrek. I think it's uh, Lord Farquaad. Uh, what is it? Some of you may die, but that is a, <laughs> a risk I'm willing to take. <laughs> I, I, this is well, where I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, and this is where I'm sort of on the fence about this. I, I, I love the idea conceptually. I think it's it sounds. Uh, like a bit of fun, you know. Yeah. Uh, the, the the flip side of this is uh, when d- during the Olympics they should have some dude from the uh, you know from the audience just come and 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 participate. Uh, Did so- I suggest that to you one day, or have you thought <laughs> oh, of that as well? Yeah, and and it should be you know get a, get a person in there just just so we get some sort of. Uh, uh, you know, average Joe kind of vibe uh, to see, you know, how good these athletes actually are. Um, and it would also be hilarious. Uh, but the oh, Olympics are too sort of, you know, they're too stuffy and, and bureaucratic and traditional to do something like that. But um, Oh, my God, could you? Yeah, you, you know, you see, I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen those um, tests where they had and I can't remember. I can't remember the Formula One driver. But basically, they had they had a racetrack where they had it was yeah it was something like a um, I don't know a, a golf a, a reasonable a reasonable car and then they had uh, something like a a, a yeah a, it was the equivalent of like a V eight supercar and then they had a uh, a Formula One car and they were all lined up on the same starting line. And the idea was that it was going to show the difference between them, and they the the bloke gets into the the, the golf and yeah takes off and he's hooning around this this corner and the the V eight guy and the Formula One guy are sort of just standing there watching him go and then the V eight guy gets into his his car and uh, after a little bit starts taking off after this other one and you're watching this formula one guy and he's just sort of watching them and you're thinking is this going to be one of those bloody tortoise and the hare things where <laughs> he's just this smart ass standing there and it got to the point where i thought no surely not he gets in thrashes both of them i yep. just just absolutely no competition yeah yeah so when you were saying that about the ordinary, but you could have, you could have, imagine just seeing an, an ordinary person like, like me and well, actually you wouldn't even do that. You'd get someone who's actually a bit bloody athletic, an ordinary, <laughs> an ordinary athlete who hadn't done a lot of training, but was, you know, okay. in sort of, you know, the, the local club level up there against um, a, like a really good Olympic level athlete and then a juiced-up enhanced games athlete and just let them go for it. That could, be, that could be very interesting to see. And I think that's kind of the fun of it, right, is, yeah. is like you've described. Uh, I guess the thing is, is I look at it at the same time and I think the fun of it makes me go, 
oh, we should definitely do this, which I think is where most people's initial reaction comes from. And then we go, oh, yeah, but like you said, some hearts might explode, some limbs might fly off. Like, you know, we don't really know what's going to happen in a lot of these cases. But I can tell you, a lot of these athletes, you know, I'm sure their lifespans are being significantly shortened by some of these illicit substances. Um, and as a result, is it is it morally and ethically okay to do this? I don't know. It depends on who you ask, I guess. At the end of the day, if it is completely voluntary, but if you're having... I, th I think the problem for me is the prize money aspect, right? Because you go, oh, well, it's voluntary. Yeah, yeah. And you go, yeah, but people are doing it to for a financial incentive. And then so you sort of... That muddies the waters about the voluntary side of things. Um Where what, I feel why? like... What, what, sorry, why do you say that? Uh, uh, well, look, there's a lot of athletes that... um Due to the nature of of their sports and things like that, they do retire. A lot of them do retire quite early. You know, in their we're sort of talking like thirties, uh, or, or in some cases into their forties. Uh, and I can see a lot of these athletes retiring uh, to to then go on to try and beat the enhanced games world records because they would rather have this uh, parachute of cash as opposed to doing alternative things or training the next generation or going and doing these you know something else so i kind of feel like in my mind the probably the biggest moral or ethical issue is the the cash if they got rid of the money and it was just it was just and uh for for science's sake you know but mm. there is no reason to do this otherwise and you're fully volunteering and you're not uh, a down on your luck, you know, uh, former athlete that just goes, oh, well, I have no other choice. So I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> dope the hell out of me uh, <laughs> up to my gills, as he said, uh, and then try and beat the world record. And if I die along the way, so be it. Uh, I really need the cash. I feel like that's kind of the line for me if they got rid of the money aspect i do feel mm. like it's a bit more for the sake of science or for the sake of sport however it should be said as well that any world record that they do break is non-official because the official world records are for non-doped athletes um plain and simple that's just how the records are, are, are held so I don't know. I feel like it could be really, really cool. We could see some crazy stuff happen uh, yeah. and really push the human body. Because, of course, you can't experiment with stuff ethically or morally either, right? Even if they are volunteers, you're not really allowed to do that sort of stuff anymore. <laughs> not, not through official channels anyway. Um, so maybe, you know, unofficially, we could do something like this. But then, actually, as I say that, I think, oh, yeah, but North Korea is going to breed some super soldier in a lab and then smash all the records and that. And, it, you know, that sounds horrible. So I don't know. I, yeah. The more I talk about this, the more I'm actually against it. The <laughs> <laughs> more I talk about, the more excited I am about it. I'm thinking, well... What do you go do then with enhancements? Like you know those uh, you you see in the, the the Paralympics, the runners who have the who've who've lost their their legs and they've got those um, 
uh, those those curved. There's there's a name. Oh yeah, the the Blade Runner. Yeah, Blade yeah, yeah. Runner. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. Oscar Pistorius, but he went crazy. So you know. Well, 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 yeah, okay. He did go a bit crazy. Was it the legs that made him crazy? Was it all the science? We'll never know. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> probably not. I don't know. But they took his blades away. I know that. Oh. <laughs> anyway, which it's an inch, it's an it's an interesting story. Yeah, look, I mean, there's definitely part of me. Like I said, the less I think about this, the more I'm for it. Um, I just, I just, <laughs> yeah, I, I just can see, especially the financial thing. I can just see it being abused by the wrong. <laughs> also, like the the crypto bros, they're not. These people don't give a shit about the athletes, right? They just want the spectacle of it. Especially if we do, as he said, and I quote, uh, "Sorry, where was it?" <laughs> the 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 events will are planned to include individual sports such as athletics, aquatics, gymnastics, strength, and combat. <laughs> what what does combat mean? Are they are they are we talking like fencing or something like that? Because I don't. I used to do fencing, and I'm not sure that performance enhancing drugs are really going to enhance that particular sport very much. Uh, possibly, maybe in ways that I've never even thought about. But but. Then I look to like say the UFC and things like that, and and that definitely you know those more contact sports um, could definitely uh, become let's say more interesting, uh, ethically dubious mm-hmm. through <laughs> through you know because <laughs> interesting but ethically dubious <laughs> yeah well I mean it is that, well the, this whole concept basically uh, can be summed up in that way it's it's very interesting it's a, a wildly uh, entertaining prospect however ethically dubious uh and it does it is reminiscent as you said of something like squid games or or something like that so well who who knows history will tell let's (laughs) speaking of history let's move on to this week in australian history all right this week in australian history we're covering 8th to the 14th of february february 8th, 1879, a controversial umpiring decision at an international cricket match results in the Sydney riot of 1879. Uh, I didn't know what the uh, didn't know what the the uh, umpiring decision was. Um, I'm not a cricketer person. I must admit, I didn't quite understand that. But there's a few people unhappy. Uh, <laughs> especially yeah, the Sydney ride of 1879. Uh, 1950. Doesn't, doesn't ring a bell. <laughs> no, yeah, no. <laughs> 1950, petrol rationing ends following World War II. 1983, a huge dust storm originating in the Mallee um, area of Victoria covers Melbourne. I remember seeing photos of that at the time, and it was just this massive cloud of dust just moving towards melbourne it was um it was pretty impressive it was almost like it was it was hollywood movie like it was so huge uh february 9th 1889 peter laylor the leader of the eureka stockade rebellion dies aged 62 1986 uh, women were ordained as priests in the Anglican Church of Australia for the first time. 1986. That's, yes. That's not that long ago. 
No, it's well, uh, yeah, I, I, I sort of had a yeah, yeah, no, back and forth on on that one. I mean, you know, what are we, what are we talking? What's that? Uh, Fourteen thirty-seven years ago, but yeah, it's not that long ago, and in some ways, well, last century. Um, February tenth, eighteen fifty-two, the Supreme Court of Victoria sits for the first time in Melbourne. Uh, 1954, Queen Elizabeth plants a tree at the Australian War Memorial to mark the beginnings of the Remembrance Driveway between Canberra and Sydney, which driven a couple of, of times. It's, um, yeah, it's just interesting to see all the, the, the trees and there's a certain, um, I don't know, there's certain poignancy to seeing uh, that long a memorial. So. Yeah, I, it actually worked for me. Uh, 1964, HMAS Voyager uh, collides with HMAS Melbourne and sinks southeast of Jarvis Bay, killing 82, which, I mean, God, you'd, you'd know a lot of the history of that. Yeah, this one is... Um... It's like, I think it's the worst maritime disaster in the Royal Australian Navy uh, in peacetime. Uh, and like there was a Royal Commission into the collision and how it happened and everything like that. Um, and like, I won't go into specifics, but yeah. the, a, the crew of the HMAS Melbourne, which was an aircraft carrier. So we're, basically we've got the HMAS Voyager, which was a destroyer, uh, collided with an aircraft carrier, a, a ship twice as long as it, basically. Mm. Um, it made a, a navigational mistake, turned in front of it, and basically got smashed. Um, the crew of the HMS Melbourne, the aircraft carrier, the whole bow of the Melbourne was very beat up, uh, and the crew of the, the Melbourne did a really good, uh, a really good job of saving the ship, essentially. Um, uh, damage control and everything like that to yeah. stop the leaking of that. So, th from the modern Navy perspective, uh, the HMS Melbourne is sort of uh, the, the collision's more taught in a way of sort of what we were talking about at the very beginning of this episode about how uh, you know you're just going about your everyday life and all of a sudden something happens and it's yeah. it's life or death type situation. Um, and the HMS Melbourne, uh, thankfully didn't sink because that would have made the disaster significantly worse than it already was um and that really is only to to the the ability of of the crew of that ship to to stop the bow uh leaking uh and and continuing to to flood the ship so it's sort of it, it is one of those just absolutely horrendous incidents that happened um and it could have been a lot worse if the Melbourne's crew didn't act in the way that they did. However, you know, there were questions to be asked about potentially the the, the nature of the collision and maybe the yeah. Melbourne's bridge crew potentially were at fault for not failing to alert the Voyager beforehand and things like that. So, you know, I'm not here to point blame or anything like that, but it no. absolutely tragic uh, situation. Yeah, yeah. And I do remember seeing pictures of the um, the, the the bow on the, the Melbourne being just uh, thinking to be able to do that much damage to what is, you know, a, essentially a big lump of steel. Mm. Um, that's a big collision. 
where were we? HMAS Melbourne, 1973 on February 10th, Australia's first legal casino, the Rest Point Casino, opens in Hobart, Tasmania. I've been there. Have you? It's yeah, it's been it's all right. It's, it's fine. It's not, you know, it's a big deal because it's the first, but by today's standards, it's pretty meh. It's it's fine. Like, there's not much else in Hobart, so, you know. Yeah, okay. Uh, reasonable restaurants there? Actually, no, the restaurants were really good. The bars are really good. I, I've, I'm i not a big gambler, but I do, yeah. I love to drink. So, uh, the casinos often have very good bars because they want to keep you at the casino. And if you're drinking, you're more likely to, you know, gamble and lose money so February 11th 1851 Tasmania plays Victoria in the first intercolonial um, cricket match 1986 Joan Child became the first woman to hold the post of speaker of the Australian House of Representatives 1986 again February 12th, 1851, Edward Hargraves finds gold near Bathurst, starting the first of many Australian gold rushes. I mean, that's that's a common theme we have through our Two Ticks Town talks, um, the impact of gold being found in different places. Uh, 1851, I've got to say, I thought that might be a touch earlier, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, anyway... I don't know. I'm still waiting my turn to to stumble, you know, break my toe on a giant nugget of gold somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 1990, Carmen Lawrence becomes Premier of Western Australia and Australia's first female Premier after the resignation of Peter Dowding. Ooh, not not Victoria once again. Slipping. Slipping. (laughs) February 13th, 1896, the Brisbane River Ferry Pearl um, capsizes, killing 28. 1907, the Northern Territory is transferred to the Commonwealth by South Australia. Um. 1938, uh, Sydney ferry, the Rodney, with 150 passengers, capsizes in Sydney Harbour while farewelling the US Navy cruiser USS Louisville, and 19 people died in that. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So was, if it's all right, if you're listening to this right now and it's the 13th of February, which it is, yep. do not get on a ferry today. Oh, Just, oh, yeah, all there's right. There's two ferries, one capsize of yeah. Brisbane and one capsize of Sydney. So oh, if you're getting on a ferry point. right now, make sure you know where a life jacket is because it's bad juju. Yeah, and if you're listening to this podcast after February the 13th, we hope you are listening to it. <laughs> yeah, well, because you're definitely not listening to it today because it'll be released in a couple yeah. of days. But next year, just watch yeah. out. Huh. Oh, God, imagine if there, imagine if there is one oh, next no, year. Don't. No, no, don't say that. Let's not fix it. Let's not, let's not, let's not, let's not bring a banana onto this historical boat. Uh, 1954, Mawson Station in the Australian Antarctic Territory is established. 1978, the Sydney Hilton bombing occurs during a meeting of the Commonwealth Heads of Government. Uh, February 14th, 1792, the colony's first shop opens at uh, Sydney Cove. And I didn't what was know, it? 
Like, it was I, a general I, store I, or something. Yeah, I, it, it must have been. It was a general. I couldn't find out anything sort of interesting about what they um, sold. Of course, you know, oh. it would have been. Yeah, you would have thought it would have been a big deal, but they were just like, nah. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah. You know, of course, you get a, You got to have a shop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um. 1916, troops mutinied against conditions at the Casula camp. Um, one sh- soldier was shot dead in a riot at a central railway station in Sydney. Yeah. 1966, Australian currency was decimalised, introducing the Australian dollar. So, yeah, I... Yeah. Glad That's a good I don't thing. have to de- yeah. Oh, yeah. dealing with pounds, <laughs> pence, and shillings and tuppences and halfpennies and I've probably mixed a whole lot of things there that yeah. aren't. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> what a nightmare. Oh, an absolute yeah. nightmare. If you if you don't know what we're talking about, go to YouTube and just Google people explaining pre-decimal currency to you. And or, or even in the British pounds uh, before they went to pence, and it's a nightmare trying to understand how it works. <laughs> uh, seriously, it, it's it's I've no idea how anyone dealt with it. It's it's just phenomenally confusing, particularly when it's from somebody who really liked the system. And they would yeah, I guess look, it was really simple. You just had you know. Twelve, twelve halfpennies to twenty-four and a half tuppences, which of course everybody knew was a shilling and a bit. So everybody <laughs> had a pound when they had fourteen point seven of them. Yeah, it's just it's it, it truly, honestly, that's what it's yeah. like. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that look of how how could it be any simpler? Oh, it could be simple if you say there's ten of them in a hundred. Exactly, the metric system it works. Yeah. Yeah, I do like that. Uh, where we got? 1975, the Order of Australia was established to recognise individuals for their public service and rounding out this week in Australian uh, history. 1981, Australia withdraws recognition, <laughs> withdraws recognition of the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia and Oh, I got an absolute, absolute shocker there. Um, quite happy to see that recognition. There's a whole lot of stories about that. They're just not really, um, not really super pleasant. But I tell you what no. is pleasant: sitting down and having a quiz and a beer. Yep, I've actually just cracked a beer. Literally, uh, myself. It's not a four X though. Um, um, you know what? I'm not even going to tell you what it is, but it is a beer. Uh, so it's become tradition that we have two questions, and actually, this one, uh, the first one at least, is is naval related. Uh, and the question is, what year was the title of Royal Australian Navy granted? to the Commonwealth Naval Forces. So this is kind of very specifically worded because the Commonwealth of Australia had, and there were, if you remember your nautical history, there were there were state naval forces prior to Federation, and then they all kind of ended up becoming 
the Commonwealth Naval Forces. So we're not talking pre that. Mm. We're talking when was the Royal Australian Navy formally declared yeah. as a title? I was I, I when I heard you ask the question, I thought it had it has to be after you know, Federation in nineteen oh one. When's it going to be? I'll give you a little tip. Oh, no, don't, don't, give, don't give me a I'll ask for a tip in a, a moment. I'm just, try, <laughs> I'm just trying to, uh, because if I score it, that's that's a bonus. Uh, I'm just trying to think how long. How long after Federation? Yeah. And that would get in there to have that for. I'm going to say it's, oh, and it's going to be, what are we going for? I'm going to say. 19 I reckon it's between 1908 and 1912 so I'm going to say 1911 oh well done it was the 10th of July 1911 King oh, George yes! King George <laughs> granted the title of the Royal Australian Navy uh, <laughs> interestingly like the the talk of it happening had been going on for quite a while so it was sort of no one's surprise uh when it when it you know formally were de- um, yeah. were declared uh but and actually ships had been ordered as well uh for for the new navy um and yeah it, but it wasn't it wasn't actually until uh 1911 that she was declared the Royal Australian, because it needs royal assent and all that sort of stuff. So there is a bit of bureaucracy, you know, behind the scenes and everything like that. So now this this one, I'm very impressed. Yeah, 1911. (laughs) I I like your reasoning that it had to be between those two dates for for various (laughs) reasons. But yeah, no, yeah, no, well done. Um, Uh, so, which island? You should. I'm hoping you'll get this. Uh, which island off the Queensland coast is Australia's fifth largest island, but it is the world's largest sand island? This is quite famous. Oh, oh largest. If you hadn't, if you hadn't told me that, I wouldn't have guessed Fraser Island. It's Fraser Island, um, also I known as Gari. It's known as what? Gari. I didn't know it was that big. Yeah, it's huge. Uh, I've been there a couple of times, actually, um, and it's absolutely massive. It, it is a bucket list, uh, as our regular listeners will know. I'm a big fan of four-wheel driving and getting out, uh, getting out and getting dirty, uh, and Fraser Island is definitely a, a big bucket list uh, place to go for a lot of four-wheel drivers. Um, it's absolutely massive. I think from uh, you can sort of drive uh, across the what is it, the Eastern Beach, um, and I think it's it's almost a hundred kilometers long. I think the beach on that side of the island from, wow. from sort of the base to, to not even to the tip of the island, just sort of that one single stretch of beach because it is it is sort of broken up towards the top. Um, there's there's a place called Indian Head, which um, is basically a big rock. And I think that was sort of the idea is there's a couple of big rocks that the sand sort of started collecting behind to form oh, the island right. in the past. Um, just just got this up, just got to get up on um, Google Maps. I don't think yeah. I've actually looked at, oh, that is a, that's a 
big island. It's friggin' huge, and and there's not a lot of infrastructure on the on the island itself. Uh, there's there's a couple of small towns, but when I ugh, I don't even really want to call them towns because they're not really. There's like uh, you know a, a handful of houses and a shop and a, you know like a petrol station and maybe at a couple of them there is a. Um, a you know, a couple of places to stay. Uh, the yeah. most famous resort is uh, Kingfisher Bay, which is one of the places I did go to when I went there, um, which is like an eco resort. It's really nice. Yeah. Uh, but most people go there for the four driving and uh, to visit the sites. And there's some incredible lakes. That's right. This was a two ticks huh. lake talk the whole time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Surprise again. <laughs> oh, my there's, God, these guys are obsessed with lakes. <laughs> there's the very famous, it's sort of world famous at this point, Lake Mackenzie, which is uh, the, the water is incredibly clear. Uh, and it, it looks like it's really deep because it, it sort of transitions from beautiful, clear along the shore to like really really dark and you've, it looks like it re- like drops off but it's actually not it's sediment in the bottom of the lake and it's actually really shallow um <laughs> so it, it, it is a bit funny i've been like i said i've been there a couple of times and the lake's absolutely beautiful the sand is like um incredibly fine like it's like oh, powder I just, just found that on the the on google maps yeah oh, everyone wow. goes to lake mckenzie it's a freshwater wow. lake it's absolutely yeah. beautiful teeming teeming with with life like fish and, and all sorts of stuff um mm. the whole island i think is a uh, is a uh, a national park i think um except for the small locations where there are existing houses and stuff like that and i don't think i think it is one of those places where no further development will probably ever happen so um you know the houses that exist exist but i don't think they'll ever sort of build anymore or anything like that so oh, right. um, okay as a result, I think the property over there is phenomenally expensive just because of its remoteness and everything like that. But it is a very cool place. You do have to have a four-wheel drive because it is sand everywhere, literally. There are basically no paved roads except I think there's a couple where you come off the barge at like Kingfisher and things like that. But, um, yeah, very cool place. Like I said, oh. a, a, a bucket list four-wheel driving spot for a lot of Australian four-wheel drive enthusiasts and camping enthusiasts and things like that. Um, a very cool, special place. And I'm glad it's actually protected because it should be because it is it is so unique um, and a cool little bit of Australian history. Oh, very interesting. So thanks for joining us for another episode of Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mum I love her. See you, DK. Bye.